Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Happiness Journey with Dr. Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Dr. Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm a cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issues, both court-appointed and private, marriage counseling, dissociative disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, dream analysis, and also provide life, business, and retirement coaching support. I provide individual one-on-one session and also do group setting. If you need any assistance, reach out to DMV Therapy and Coaching Services at 301-325-1550. Our website is lifecoach10amzalife.com. Today, I'm very excited to have for our ninth episode of season five, a very special guest and doctor, uh, Mr. Vimal George. And just like every of my past episode, I will leave it out to the guests to properly introduce themselves as no one can do a better job. Doctor, the floor is yours. Thank you, Dr. Dan, and thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I'm a family doc. I'm here um, living in Austin, Texas. Uh, Just a little bit about me. I've been practicing for about 15 to 20 years. And uh, over time, I've come to um, uh, take on different positions, uh, become section chief of my uh, multi-specialty practice, and eventually to being chief of quality. And over that time, uh, I've kind of uh, gotten to see um, uh, population health from uh, a different angle that, that um, led me to write a book. Uh, it's called Health in Flames, A Doctor's Prescription for Living Beyond Diet and Exercise. Mm-hmm. And happy to tell you a little bit about that. Absolutely, Doc. So um, when you, you're a general practitioner, you basically just... Uh, um, like uh, help families and you help individuals to be able to achieve their optimal health. Uh, but now, what have you noticed from 20 years ago when you were in school, uh, when you were doing your residency, to what's going on now? How it has become a capitalistic system primarily, and it's all about how the big pharma companies are just focused on keeping the patient or the citizen sick as much as possible so they can actually continue making money on them. So what's your stance? Uh, unfortunately, that's, that's true to some extent. So what we're seeing is that over time, um, rates of chronic disease are increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're talking about things from things as varied as diabetes on the one hand to high blood pressure to chronic anxiety disorders, um, things that you, Dr. Dan, would know very well, depression disorders. Uh, what we're seeing is an increase in chronic disease over time, uh, similarly an increase in obesity over time. Mm-hmm. And with that, an increase in healthcare expenses over time. So you would think that, you know, over time that we would, since we're spending more money on this, that we would be containing chronic disease, if not shrinking chronic, the, the burden of chronic disease in our population. But in fact, that's the opposite of what we're seeing. So uh, just to take one example, you know, diabetes used to be 1% of the population in the 1950s, and now over 10% of the population has uh, diabetes among, uh, among the U.S. adult population. And so what that tells us is that something's very wrong, mm-hmm. right? We're, not, uh, we're obviously not managing the disease. We're not preventing it. And the fact is that uh, even according to the CDC's own statistics, 80 to 90% of these chronic diseases are preventable. And so, you know, basically uh, what we're doing, unfortunately, is uh, sort of putting a bandage on the problem uh, by um, treating with uh, various medications when we should be able to prevent chronic disease to start with. Mm -hmm. 
Now, would you agree, uh, Doc, that a lot of the health food industry, or the, no, not the health, I would say the junk food industry, are working with the big pharma to be able to create this constant, um, I would say, health status that uh, most citizens are in and to encourage diabetes. Why? What would you say that health food is way more expensive and out of reach of the regular citizen versus junk food? So if everyone were eating healthier, there will not be any diabetes. There will not be obesity that 61% of the population are now suffering from. So why are they just letting this continue? Why don't they tax junk food to a point of no one can afford it and allow healthy food, vegetables, fruits to be able to be in everyone's diet? Why are they encouraging this crap? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, so uh, unfortunately, some of this is just really tasty food, right? <laughs> and so it's just hard to resist. And, and so that's part of the problem. Um, at, um, so that's the diet aspect of it is um, uh, correctly, as you point out, that food has become changed in a way that it's no longer food. It's really just, you know, kind of processed junk that we're used to consuming. Um, and then on the other side of it, there's the fact that uh, we're exercising much less than our, our, our forefathers. And so uh, there's an interesting survey that took place about you know, maybe about five years ago now that looked at what percentage of U.S. adult population met four simple criteria. One was a healthy weight, two, no smoking, mm-hmm. three, eating a healthy diet, and four, exercising regularly. And what percentage of, of uh, the U.S. population, adult population, would you guess met those four criteria? <laughs> very, very, very small. I, okay, I think I could count it in my hand. <laughs> yeah, 2.7%, uh, which is shocking, right? Wow. And, and what that tells us is that, you know, we are, once again, just kind of treating chronic disease as opposed to uh, mm-hmm. preventing it. And what I try to, um, you know, the point I come to in the book, it, at some level, we, we all know that we're not exercising enough, we're eating unhealthy. But what is it that's driving that? Um, and what I point to is that it has to do with the, with our system of, of economics on the one hand and human nature on the other hand, which combined together result in overconsumption. And what I mean by this is that it results in what we call mindless overconsumerism. Okay. When you, when you first hear that, how does consumerism actually relate to poor health? Uh, there's, you know, kind of four or five major ways that I kind of talk about in the book that I'm happy to go into in a little detail uh, at your prompting. <laughs> so. Now, um, would you also agree that the media has a huge impact on how people change their behavior? So if, let's say, in the media, we primarily put a lot of, like, fitness expert telling you what are the best ways to lose weight? What are the best way to keep yourself active? What is it? And avoid putting so much emphasis on the junk food, McDonald's, uh, or all the, the crappy food restaurant and diminishing that part and enhancing the healthy part isn't going to those messages being repeated over and over again into the subconscious mind will start making people change their behavior and start eating healthier because it's all a form of habit. It takes around what, 55 days to start changing a habit or adopting a new one. So if that is the case, isn't that the most simplest solution? 
Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, we, we really have to address both the diet and the exercise component of it, right? So, you know, just on the, um, on the diet side, kind of as you pointed out, the fact is that, once again, according to CDC statistics, only about 9% of Americans are getting an adequate intake of fruits and vegetables. So 9% are getting <laughs> vegetables a day, right? And so obviously that speaks of something um, that's very wrong uh, in, in, in the way we're managing our diet. And on the exercise side, only about 23% of us get an adequate amount of exercise defined by you know, uh, an adequate amount of cardio and strengthening exercise per week. And so, you know, you put these two together and what you realize is that this is not how our forefathers lived, right? Um, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, uh, and certainly before the industrial revolution, um, nearly everyone was much more active. I mean, if you were to say what percentage of our pre-industrial ancestors um, met the criteria for adequate exercise, what would you, what would you say, Dr. Dan? Oh, um, well, they, they had, I mean, if they had to take care of the farms to be able to produce food, they're doing about to be going cultivating the, the vegetables. Yeah. So you're active from 5 a.m. until 10 p.m. every single day. Exactly. So, no. I mean, you could go back further to pre, um, the pre-agricultural revolution when our hunter-gatherer ancestors uh, were even more active, right? And so... Yeah, they had to what that tells you is that 99.8% of our existence, we were much more active. The post-industrial period is only about 2% of uh, our existence as a species. As, in, in terms of hu hu humans have been around for about a couple hundred thousand years. And really our weight has been stable all for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. In the last several decades has that changed. And, uh, and again, it, it, it comes with the rise of consumerism, uh, which, which again, I'm, I'm happy to go into more detail. But. So it, it is really alarming when you look at the percentage and the actual number of 300 million Americans are eating unhealthy, are eating the, the junk food that we see uh, you know, advertised every single day. So those people and actually the, their, their kids and their next generation are just going to put more, I would say, weight on the healthcare system, which will continue being more and more expensive for those who are healthy because they're contributing to paying for all those expenses. Where is it going to end? I mean, now we're just going, we're just noticing that it's just going to make it worse and worse as the generation goes by because we're going to see yeah. more and more obese, more and more people dealing with diabetes, with uh, yeah. heart issues, with. Uh, uh, everything else with liver cirrhosis, if they're drinking yeah. and all that. So where does, I mean, how can we break that link, Doc? Yeah, let me um, kind of go into that question in a little bit of detail. So um, as I mentioned, you know, consumerism is what is driving a lot of this. And what I mean by that is our spending, the way we spend our money. And again, again, when you first hear that, you're like, what, how does that have anything to do with our health, right? So let's think about that for a minute. Um, you know, if you look at the way we are living our lives, we are, you know, employed in a model of employment which is very unhealthy. Correct. So, typical um, American nowadays 
uh, is tied to a desk from eight to five in front of a computer, <laughs> which means that, you know, uh, they're, they're very sedentary for that entire time. Uh, not to mention driving through traffic to and from work. Another couple, hours. another couple hours there, right? And so, you know, basically um, you tend to rush through your breakfast and lunch and usually you're too tired to have an adequate time to prepare a, a nourishing meal uh, for dinner time for you and your family. And so, you know, that, that, that's kind of the first way in which we, through our, our excess consumption, overconsumption, um, is tying our, ourselves to a model employment, which is unhealthy for us. Okay. So let's kind of back up for a second. Um, what that means is that what I, I guess I'm suggesting is that if we manage our finances in a way that we are consuming much less, and I mean spending less money uh, on things that actually don't translate to increased happiness, then uh, in other words, we, we tend to chase pleasures or tend to, to spend mindlessly, tend to th spend on things that have no impact on our happiness, right? And so as a result, we're, we're uh, chained to our employer. Now, if we can get, um, if we can get a hold of our, our consumption habits, we would actually be able to save a large part of our income for many people. And if you could save that income and you can invest it, then over time, you can be independent of your employer. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be retired. It just gives you a certain level of freedom after which you can decide for yourself how you're going to structure your day, right? And so you're, it doesn't uh, translate to, to automatically being healthy, but it does translate to um, having the potential to be able to rid yourself of this model of employment where you're tied to a desk from eight to five. And again, that's just kind of one of the ways. There's, there's a few other ways that, that I talk about in the book, how consumerism leads to um, uh, poor health. Just to give you another idea, you know, really we've kind of engineered out the need for exercise in our lives, right? So you and I, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you're like me. If you open the door, you go straight into the garage and there's your car, <laughs> right? I mean, that's how we have structured our lives. So now, you know, you don't really need your legs anymore in a, in a real sense, right? I mean, um, I'm kidding, of course, but not too much, really, because we, we don't need to use our legs to get very far. Now, if you look at the healthiest living people around the world, and again, this is backed up by a lot of studies that I go into in the book, they tend to, if you ask them, uh, what is the secret to being so healthy, to living such a long and healthy life? And, you know, the surprising thing that they'll tell you is that they don't know. Mm -hmm. And the reason they know what it is, is because it's oftentimes structured into their daily existence. And so, for example, a lot of these places, they may not have roads leading straight to their house. They may have to take their bike, for example, to be able to get around. And so, you know, uh, again, this is just a second way in which our consumption habits, in this case, searching for convenience, has led us to a point of of where we're almost shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of our health. I see. Um, but also, would you agree, Doc, that it's also environmental, which means that where 
um, let's say someone who lives in the sunshine state, mm. they're more likely to be exposed, not exposed to the wind or the cold that like we have in Northern state, but they're more yep. likely to be able to be out more often, to be able to go jogging, go bicycling, uh, swimming, whatever it is. And it's like 300 days out of the year versus Northern state where they only mm-hmm. have sunshine for three months out of the year at best. So yeah. those who live down South or, you know, the, the Caribbeans or anything like that, they're more likely to be healthier, or I would say be out more often and exercise more often than those who hibernate for a long period of time. So again, okay, if we do choose to where we want to live, the best option is to live in a sunnier place where vitamin D is in abundance, where people, because now a lot of people are lacking vitamin D doc because yeah. They're under like isolation. They don't go out as often uh, with all the curfew that certain government are putting into their citizen. They cannot do much. So this pandemic has just aggravated a lot Mm. of things when it comes to wanting to reach your goals, but you can't because now you have to deal with authority that tells you when you can breathe, when you can eat, when you can wipe your butt, when you could do whatever it is. So enough is enough with this, with all this. People have to start taking action of their own health because the government doesn't really give a damn. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the environment definitely plays a huge role in how we, uh, how much more likely we are to be active. Um, But, you know, what I'd like to suggest is that really um, we've gotten comfortable. We've gotten comfortable with um, our, our technologies, right? And so, now we're in perfectly controlled, temperature controlled environments, 24 seven almost. Mm-hmm. And the, the result is that unless the temperatures are perfect, <laughs> we just don't feel out. This wasn't a choice a uh, hundred years ago. There was no heating and AC. Mm-hmm. And so our, once again, our forefathers were just naturally much more active. And um, it's, I guess, in in a sense, it's something that, you know, we've kind of gotten used to being pampered. Uh, I hate to say it that way. Um, But in a real sense that there is something to that. Mm -hmm. So would you comfortably say that our health is just going to go degrading from years and generation to come? Because it feels that when we look at two or 300 or 400 years ago, and one archaeologist, they find remains of people who were giants, seven feet, eight feet tall, nine feet tall. And now it seems like we're shrinking in terms of height, where our health is getting worse. So what's going to happen in a hundred years? Our our lifespan is going to be like shorter than what it is now, or because of the, the, you know, the medication that we're giving, we're expanding or extending the lifespan of people. But now the average is what, 78 years old nowadays? So... How, how are you seeing the future, if you could predict? Yeah. Great question, Dr. Van. Um, so I think that lifespans may continue to increase and will actually, because of technological um, so, uh, you know, innovation, we'll actually be able to cure a lot of the chronic disease that we're not even able to manage today. So um, things, um, for example, like diabetes, um, Alzheimer's, chronic dis- depression, anxiety disorders, a lot of these things, because of technological innovation, we'll be able to, to actually cure. Now, here's the problem. <laughs> we have to differentiate between um, healthy, uh, good health, and 
managing chronic disease. So yes, we'll be able to manage chronic disease, but the problem is the way we're going forward, we're just gonna continue to be sedentary. We're gonna continue to be eating processed foods. That's not gonna translate to improvements in our health and well-being, and ultimately our happiness, which is again, what we're really after. We're not actually, you know, our politicians, <laughs> whether you're on the left or on the right, uh, their sole focus, uh, it seems, some at a lot of the time is is GDP growth, which is a measure of productivity. Mm-hmm. And yet we're not interested in becoming increasingly productive. We're not machines. <laughs> we're we're actually interested in our health, our hap- our health, our well being, and ultimately our happiness. And so, unless we change the direction we're going in, just living longer and being increasingly productive, but sedentary is not gonna to translate to an increased sense of well-being and happiness. Oh, okay. But then um, you, you said one thing that I, I pay attention to. You said manage uh, the you know, illnesses, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the quality of life is going to be better because you could extend someone's life, but yes. they, you know, on their respirator or whatever it is, or they, they always have to take pills, that they ingest, which that create side effects and side effects, yeah. are really, you know, they're not really the, the, the best one for them. So how can you differentiate between manage illnesses and yeah. improve quality of life? Now you can live until hundred years old, but if after 80, it's a crappy life, what's the point? Exactly. So really you have to do as our ancestors did, you know, eat a healthy diet, and exercise regularly. And these actually, there's a lot of science that backs it up that actually improves our well-being. And so, you know, once again, just enabling us to be increasingly productive, but increasingly sedentary, tied to a, a desk, really chained to a desk almost, it doesn't translate to a sense of uh, what are better health or well-being. And so, um, you, you know, in, in a real sense, um, um, it, it's, it's like we're, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, it's, it's, it's a direction that we don't necessarily have to go. There is a better option out there. And again, you know, once what I point to is that if we, it, it depends on the way we manage our finances. Now, if you look back uh, once again, um, you know, in our pre-industrial times, there were big problem. So I'm not telling us, I'm not suggesting that anybody that we're trying, we should go back to the stone ages. That's not the point. Uh, they had some huge issues. So, at, you know, our ancestors had issues with food security and um, major infectious diseases. Right. We've largely been able to overcome a lot of the infectious diseases, thanks to certain innovations, thanks to technologies that are now in place and sanitation. Um, and we've actually produce much more food for all the people that, you know, exist on earth, that we're able to manage, uh, we're able to feed everybody with enough food. Now, the problem is we've now in, instead um, changed food to become uh, not food at all, but, you know, just kind of processed junk and at the same time become increasingly uh, sedentary. So um, if the toxicity of food intake has increased as we increase the production of food, um, then at this point, what have we really solved? We have not really solved anything. We, we, we fixed a problem to create another one. And this other yeah. one 
can be even more severely detrimental to someone's body because everything is processed. Everything is done in a manufacturer. Nothing is natural. Nothing is pure. Nothing is, is actually helping someone to be able to improve their quality of life, live longer, appear younger. Okay. Yeah. Because as you age, you look older, but some people who are healthy, they exercise regularly. They actually look younger than what they are, but then they age. And now you see that people are just aging in a way that it's not really the way that you want to. Okay. So, yeah. Um, what again, I mean, if, if this is pretty, I would say insane in a way that you try to fix one problem and you create another one. And the reality is that no big pharma wants to fix that problem because it's not profitable for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, the, the issue, I mean, the, the message of, um, uh, living healthy <laughs> doesn't sell <laughs> many drugs. So. Uh, you know, it, it just doesn't work for the pharmaceutical industry. You know, if you look back, um, uh, I, I guess, you know, once again, um, it's, we, we had, we, we sort of graduated from the diseases of poverty, which were largely related to infectious diseases and malnourishment, to now the diseases of overabundance. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, uh, it relates to the, the food that we have. And, um, and, and the fact is that, you know, our ancestors didn't really have a choice, right? You know, starvation was a real issue. They just didn't produce enough food and they had infectious diseases that they couldn't overcome because they don't have the technology that we have today. But we have a choice. You know, we don't have to consume that um, processed food. We have enough healthy food, natural food out there, and we have the choice to become active once again, if only we are free enough to be able to get away from our desk, mm -hmm. you know, sitting in a desk tied to, uh, uh, tied to the, to the computer, largely eight to five, uh, plus sitting through traffic to and from work. So it is a choice that we have. Um, what I talk about in the book is that, you know, once again, if you can manage your finances in a way that you can invest a good part of your income over time, you're likely to become financially independent of your employer which translates to many health stream, health side benefits uh, down, down the road. And so uh, I'd, I'd like to, you know, kind of put that out there as a real solution um, that any individual can take advantage of. You don't have to wait for the rest of the system. You don't have to wait for the rest of the system to do this. You, you know, we don't have to have some government intervention. It's something that we could do today. I see. But again, if let's say the people are more, I would say that the way that the educational system has contributed for people to say, okay, now you're in school, finish school, get yourself a job, work until you're 65, then you retire, and then work 50 years of your life to really enjoy only 11 years, give and take. So um, if you change the education system and you help people becoming more financially savvy, more yes. dependent at a young age, they'll be able to have enough time to accumulate wealth. So they yeah. don't depend on any of the employer. But if by the time that they graduate, they work for a company, they spend most of their adult years working for someone, then at the end, they have not really had the chance to be able to save enough money because the cost of living is skyrocketing right now, Doc. So what really is left, I mean, for them to do? I mean, how can you change their mindset to start real, to start waking up actually, because it seems like everyone is like on the zombie state of mind. 
They're like yeah. with their head in under the sand and not wanting to know the truth. Yeah, you know, Dr. Dan, you, you hit upon a lot of good points there. So um, first of all, you know, we really don't teach this sort of thing in, in schools uh, in terms of being able to be financially savvy, to actually have a goal of becoming financially independent, right? And even if you listen to the typical financial advisor, they'll tell you to put away maybe 10, maybe if they're really aggressive, 20% of your income uh, to invest in. But really, if you look at the science of happiness, what it tells you is that, you know, once your basic needs are met, then, uh, you know, I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but you could look at the research in the book, um, because again, it takes a bit of a complicated discussion to get to this point. But basically, once you met, meet your basic needs, the best things in life are free, <laughs> which means, you know, so uh, for example, uh, things that actually translate to improved happiness are things like spending time with family and friends, uh, pursuing a goal, um, exercising, getting good sleep, um, you know, and those things that are largely free of cost, right? So what that tells us is that we really have the capability to put away much more of our income than the typical financial advisor would uh, typically recommend. So 30, 40, maybe 70% of your income, depending on how much you make, a lot of us are able to be able to do that if we understand the science behind um, how um, our spending affects our, our well-being, which again, most of it, most of our spending, vast majority, uh, once you meet your basic needs, really doesn't tend to increase your happiness. But then doesn't that contradict about living mindfully, which means that you live for today instead of like focusing too much on the future? Because if you, you deprive yourself today to be able to save for your future, no one knows what's going to happen to us. No one knows if we're going to live until 78 or 80 or whatever it is. So how do you find the right medium between both? Yeah, excellent question. Here's the thing. So once again, uh, the science really answers the question for us, right? There's an entire science uh, of uh, how your money and spending relate to your happiness. And what we find is that, in fact, if you look at it um, uh, on an individual basis or even on a national basis, look at GDP growth over time versus happiness in the United States. And the shocking discovery is that despite the fact that GDP is increasing over time, we're increasingly productive, we're spending more, we're, we're buying more, and yet our levels of happiness have actually started to decline in these last several decades. And so what that suggests is that you know, you don't need to really give up anything. Okay, so the way we're spending, uh, we just need to be mindful of the fact that a lot of these um, spending habits actually don't translate to increase in happiness. Sure. We think, but most of that spending actually has no impact on our happiness. And again, studies have proven this over and over. Um, I'd love to go into, you know, the detailed research. That takes a little bit of time. But again, you can refer to that in the book. But what I suggest is that, you know, for most, oh, really all of us, once we've met our basic needs, a lot of that uh, happiness that we derive comes from spending time with family and friends, uh, nourishing our body, nourishing our soul, nourishing our mind in a way that doesn't really require much, in, uh, much spending. 
So basically getting the iPhone number 15 is irrelevant. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when you see people up uh, overnight to be able to buy their phone that their original phone is not broken, it's just temporary level of happiness that they fulfill for that given time. And after that, they look at their phone and said, what the hell did I buy this for? Exactly. And you know what? That tied us to uh, a... Um a longer period where we're tied to our employer. Mm -hmm. Every spending decision does that, right? Every time we spend, we're basically tying ourselves to our, our employer uh, a little bit more. That, that actually is a very, very good point. And instead of like um, freeing yourself from yes. burden of always depending on your weekly paycheck, I mean, yes. you need to take, start taking action. Like you said, you have two choices. You look at the grocery store, you look at junk food, or you look at healthy food, you're the one who decides which direction you want to go, either the yeah. unhealthy way or the healthy way. People don't think about the impact long-term. They're always going to think, well, doctors like Dr. Vimal is going to fix me, is going to give me a pill that's going to make me feel better. Yeah. So people are more reactive than proactive. And yeah. because of that mindset, doc, Unfortunately, even though I'm a very positive person, I don't see much progress in that area. And mm -hmm. until people start taking affirmative action in their behavior, mm -hmm. nothing is going to change. Actually, everything is going to worsen. So yeah. until people start realizing the impact that they put in their own health, in their mm -hmm. decision-making process, that's going to have recurring effect in their future in which... Yeah reduce their lifespan or extend their life, but their quality is going to be crappy. So what? Yeah. yeah you know, I, I have this dilemma all the time, Dr. Dan. I mean, I, you, you phrased it perfectly. So really, you know, if I try to convince folks to be mindful of their spending habits in order to improve their health, I might recruit maybe one in a hundred people. <laughs> okay. okay. Not a very successful strategy, but here's the thing. Uh, this is actually the same exact steps that you would take if you wanted to be incredibly wealthy. Okay. And so suddenly you can recruit just about everyone, right. And, you know, everyone's interested in, in becoming wealthy. And so, you know, if you're, if that's what you're interested, if that's what is your interest, then, you, you know, once again, the secret is you, you can read a thousand finance books and they tell you the same thing. Here it is. Live well within your means mm -hmm. and in, rest of your money. And that's it. And that's basically what this comes down to, right? So the way we can manage our finances uh, really can translate to a healthier lifestyle. Beautiful. So tell me. I'm wealthier uh, outcome too. Oh yeah, obviously, definitely. They, they go hand in hand. So where can our listeners find your book, Doc? Yeah, sure. You can uh, come to the uh, my website. It's uh, www.healthandflames.com. Um, and there's uh, links to all the major retailers from Amazon to Barnes and Nobles to Apple or whichever bookstore, online bookstore you, you prefer. And so, um, yeah, you could certainly um, uh, do that. Uh, secondly, I hope you guys do read the book and share it with uh, family and friends. Um, you know, feel free to get it from the library. I'm not trying to make a lot of money. I want you guys to get the message out there. And uh, you do get to reading it. I do hope to, uh, I hope you guys can um, spread the word and post a review for me. Absolutely. And you know what, to all the listeners out there, I mean, I hope this is going to be a true awakening 
especially in the field of health and fitness and uh, not live based on, you know, what you think is the right way. You have to get educated. You have to learn. You have to research and find out what works for you because not everything will work for everybody, you know, uniformly. So we have to like, people have to really be curious about what is the new healthy way of living your life mindfully, um, I would say physically, spiritually, and everything that follows. So but unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today's podcast, Doc. And I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us. And thank you again for participating and inspiring our many listeners with your incredible story and also your skill set. Now, we hope that you've all enjoyed today's episode. And I'm very excited about the many upcoming guests that we have scheduled for season five of the Happiness Journey podcast, filled with incredible stories, just like the one that you listened today. Now, here are some concluding words of wisdom. When you order eggs for breakfast at a restaurant, chances are you're always going to choose sunny side up, if not scrambled. The waiter will never offer you this choice of sunny side down, as no one wants to start their day feeling depressed with gray clouds over their head. From startup every day, we look for sunshine and heat. Why do you think people are in a better mood in cities where the sun shines 360 days a year instead of only 90 days like Northern State? Hence the reason why so many experience depleted vitamin D level in their body. This vitamin helps us rejuvenate ourselves and our souls. Why do you think supermen extract their power from? You got it right, the sun. My name is Dr. Dan Amzalag, and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life.